this book feels like parental propaganda. Totally. <laughs> Let me read you a chapter about what's going to happen to you if you don't do the dishes or something. It's like, really heavy handed at times. Listen to your parents and work hard. Friends, to episode 260 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm writer Luke Elliott. And I'm filmmaker James Bailey. And this week we discuss Carlo Collodi's 1883 children's novel, The Adventures of Pinocchio. I, I don't know about you, but this is a story that has been with me since young age. I saw this as a little kid. I saw the original Disney's Disney version of this, but I had never read the book before. That was the first time for that. How about you? Yeah, same. Long history with it. Uh very familiar with the Disney film and then was a fan of Kingdom Hearts. So got to go back to that world many times <laughs> into the world of the belly of the whale, if you will. With Monstro. I never really got into Kingdom Hearts. So like, is that a, is that a level or something? Yeah, it's one of the one of cool. the worlds you can visit. That makes sense. It's a big Disney property, a classic. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, this is the first time covering the book, talking about the book, reading the book. And we also got a very particular version of the novel in the uh, Gris Grimly illustrated version that was the inspiration for Guillermo del Toro's stop motion film, which is what we'll be covering next week. Um, And uh, it has a very particular art style that I actually really loved and and I thought was really fun to to look at. Um, Interestingly, I also listened because I often listen to the audio book at the same time as reading the physical copy. Um, it kind of helps with my ADHD, I think, to like help me focus. And I immediately found that this was a tricky one to do that with because the version, at least, that I listened to, I don't know if it was translation differences or what I encountered at the end of the book where it said that um, there had been editorial changes made to the book. And it felt a lot more like, kind of modernized and accessible to like an English speaker. Um, than the actual written words in the version that we have. So I often found I couldn't actually read them both at the same time. I had to like favor one or the other, um, in which I kind of went back and forth between. But they each had a dis- distinct feel to them. And the, the, the version that actually has the illustrations, a little harder to understand at times, um, whereas I thought like the audio version did a good job of of making it that more accessible version, but that created a lot of discrepancies in like even what things are called. So at times we might have, uh, we might be seeing some different stuff depending on what version we're drawing from. <laughs> I just want to talk about the artwork too, because I, I love it. I, I it, it's, I kind of reminds me in some ways of the James and the giant peach, uh, feel that we got a yeah. little bit kind of an, like almost like a, it's, I don't want to call it this, but like it's got a bit of that Tim Burton style feel to it. And I, you know, I don't know where this came out alongside that, but I, I loved it because of the creature designs and they're like off putting in a really fun way. I loved it. I, I, it gave me, I kind of wish that this is the version that I always had in my mind when I was, when I was going through the story. So it was fun to get that. I saw he was heavily influenced the illustrator. I was reading about him and um, he was heavily influenced by a lot of horror stuff early on. What's the name of the uh, the scary stories to tell in the dark? Kind of Stephen Gamble, I think, is the artist. Yeah, yeah. It's not quite that. It's not quite that like disturbing, 
But you could see that he's like playing with the idea of stuff being sort of dark and disturbing, even though it's designed for children. Well, and I think it's cool because if if this version of the story and this artwork came out after the Disney version, it's like recapturing it because I do think. Oh, it did. It's definitely much newer than that. Yeah, I figured. So and I think that the story that everybody remembers through the Disney is sanitized heavily from what we just read. This is more dark and it has a lot more. There's like death in it and something about it um lends itself to that to that style they definitely yeah i mean they disnified it when they when they released it right <laughs> that's what they do <laughs> yeah but this style kind of really matches with that that the tone of the story i think and, and that lends itself to a really cool experience yeah totally agree um so we're we're going to move into history of the book history of the author but before we do like what were your what were your general takeaways um from reading this thing and uh you know was it what you expected to, to change anything up? In this reading, I learned how to be a real boy, a real yeah, good, good boy with all my <laughs> lessons laid out before me. And don't I misbehave. Think I, yeah, I'm supposed to work and not be lazy. And I'm don't, supposed to definitely don't be lazy. <laughs> all the things, all the lessons being thrown at you all at the same time in kind of we've talked about the kid format before each chapter is its own. Uh, you know, sectioned off beginning, middle of an end, and it's got its own morality to yeah, it. I don't know if that would necessarily be called the kid format, but it's um, it's definitely serialized. And this book was released in serial form, um, which I have some details about. That's how it was first published in a magazine. And then eventually he collected it all together and made it into a novel. I guess kid version is my like, uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's my that's my tag for it, because I just <laughs> lack of a better term, right? Well, we have encountered some children's stories that have that feel for sure. And I was thinking about L. Frank Baum uh, that we covered earlier this year. Uh, and, and one of the things we read about him is that he wanted to write a story that didn't have a bunch of like lessons built into it. And I remember feeling like, oh, there's still pretty, you know, still some lessons in, in Wizard of Oz. But then reading this and I'm like, this is probably what he was reacting to. And I partially this particular book because it's so famous, but also just like stories like this. You can see how heavy handed the like, I am teaching you a lesson, children, pay attention and be a good child and go to school and, you know, and listen to your lessons. And, and, but then there's like a stick at the end of each of those things or else like, there's always an or, or else, else. Yeah. we're going to do this because that's, that's sort of the older way of doing things. Um, it didn't feel like an American story. It feels like older than that. It, it, it reminds me more, more of like the, the Brothers Grimm stuff that we've yep. covered and, you know, a lot of that yep. older stuff. There's some interesting intersections there we'll get into. But basically, I, I'll just say it now since we talked about it, he got to start translating a lot of like uh, the, the Brothers Grimm style fairy tales into Italian. And then also he uh, translated the to the Mother Goose tales that we talked about. Yep. Right. He, he directly translated those tales into Italian before he wrote this. So you can tell that he's reacting to that stuff in this in this version. It's all it, all that connective tissue is just starting to tie together, and then we can. I, I love how we can slot it in and see that like this came out before Frank L. Frank Baum did his stuff, and that he's reacting to this story because this was immensely popular, which we'll get into. One thing I did want to say though, um, as much as we were talking about how much it is like teaching you a lesson very much throughout the whole book, I thought it was also still pretty delightful in the sense of. It has a almost manic pace because of these chapters. Um, every chapter is short, very short, and yet a lot happens in it. It's it's like a, a very easy read in that sense. Like you're flying through. There's lots of adventures, and it's called the Adventures of Pinocchio, and it's often shortened to just Pinocchio. But 
it truly felt like the adventures of Pinocchio as I'm reading it. It's like, man, he has a lot of adventures. <laughs> this is his journey to Mordor. Like that's like yeah. long, long drawn out adventure that he goes on and, and more extended than I ever would have imagined from a Pinocchio novel, knowing what I knew from the Disney film. Cause he's an interesting protagonist style character because although he is clearly the sort of hero of the story, he's also his own biggest like problem. Cause he keeps, lying he keeps getting taken in by people who lie he's got a lot of like he's lazy he doesn't want to work he doesn't want to study he wants to the easy way he looks for easy money he's you know he makes a lot of unscrupulous decisions and then they come back to bite him over and over again um and it takes a long time for him to sort of finally change which we get at the end um but uh it it, that makes him a compelling narrator and protagonist in a sense because I should say protagonist because there is a narrator and it's kind of the author talking to us. But um, it makes him a compelling protagonist, I think, because he's not perfect. And we we can see ourselves in a lot of the flaws and you can identify with a lot of the decisions he makes. Even as you know they're wrong, you're like, oh, don't do it, Pinocchio. But like, you know, he's going to because he's just kind of foolish and yeah. um, naive. He's not very predictable, right? Like every time... I mean, I think some of the time you can tell where he's going to go, but then often he'll he'll just do the right thing, do the wrong thing. You're not sure because it, it would be one thing if it was this sort of children's tale where he's doing the wrong thing over and over and over. And by the end, he like understands how to do the right thing. But he's like going back and forth and sort of growing as time goes on. And um, I do think he's a bit dim. Oh, for sure. Gullible. He just is willing to say, not even just gullible, but he's willing to just be like, you're so-and-so. And then that person, like the the younger fairy that's wasn't really a fairy or I, I said that they were. It's your haired fairy. Mm-hmm. Right. So there's the older one. And then just randomly, he's like, you look just like her. So you're the fairy. That kind yeah. of thing. You, you get a bit of that throughout I the story. I think she is, though. I think that's the idea. But even in within the narrative, in the text, it's like she goes along with it or something. Yeah, yeah, it's unclear because then also, I mean, we'll get into it, but later it's like there's like a uh, an animal that looks like the blue-haired fairy and he's like, you're the blue fairy now. And I wasn't sure if like that was true or not. That raises a lot of interesting questions about this book that like I, I was realizing that like it's not interested in like explaining a lot. It's very whimsical. It's a fairy tale. There's a lot of talking animals. Um, the magic that animates this puppet is mysterious. Well, he's just a wood. He's just he's, yeah. He's just a magical piece of wood. He's a talking piece of wood when we first encounter him, who is then carved into a marionette, which is wild. I <laughs> did not expect that. <laughs> kind of horrific too. Yeah, it's like <laughs> sentience and like a immovable piece of stump. Yeah, I will say it doesn't seem as much as like I think this story has gone on to be a really interesting fable about something being granted sentience that is not human, and that like. AI sort of route that I think a lot of modern people think about when they think about a puppet. They're like, think about like an AI being that's not really present in this at all. And in fact, it like, it feels like it is, it is really treating Pinocchio, the marionette as just a metaphor. Like this is just purely metaphorical. Um, and his journey into becoming a real boy is just about learning the lessons necessary to be a good boy and then if you can do that sufficiently you will then become a real boy but it's also kind of treating him as a real boy throughout like there's not a lot of like really treating him as a marionette they're already referring to him as a boy and geppetto is and everything whereas i maybe maybe the disney film is is to be blamed or or credited with all of the ai stuff because it has that super famous like no strings on me 
and how that is kind of the idea of sen- of sentience in an AI is like once you can set it free without any anybody pulling the strings, it goes on to to be true. There's also sapience, I should say. I, I re- recently, uh, my, my friend Monty was talking about uh, how he's been called out for sentience versus sapience, and apparently, like people who are sticklers about that. Um, and that af- often when we're talking about sentience and AI, we're actually talking about sapience, apparently. Copy. All right. <laughs> I'll, I'll note that. I got to I gotta look more into that. <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe uh, the next week we'll look in, into that more <laughs> if that becomes important or not. I'm not sure. We'll see. I'm, I'm really curious to see how this movie is. But um, let's get into the history behind the book and the author if you're ready. Let's do it. Okay. So Carlo Lorenzini... Uh, was born in 1826, and he would die suddenly in 1890, Um, so fairly young. He is better known by the pen name Carlo Collodi, which is what's on the the cover and what you'll often hear. Uh, He was an Italian author, humorist, and journalist, widely known for his fairy tale novel, The Adventures of Pinocchio. The book is about the mischievous adventures of an animated marionette named Pinocchio and his father, a poor woodcarver named Geppetto. It's interesting that it calls him a father here because is he a father? Like he literally buys the hunk of wood from another guy and then carves him. And that's kind of what makes him into the father. I don't know. He has a fist fight with the guy too, the woodcutter or whatever he is. (laughs) I know, yeah. Carpenter. They have like a multiple, multiple session fist fight, which was pretty funny actually. Yeah. Um, Anyway, it was originally published in serial form as the story of a puppet. That was the title. In one of the earliest Italian weekly magazines for children, starting from July of 1881. So that's actually when the first uh, adventure appeared. The story stopped after nearly four months and eight episodes at chapter 15. But by popular demand from its readers, the episodes were resumed in 1882. Uh, In 1883, the story was published in a single book. And since then, the spread of Pinocchio on main markets for children's books of the time has been continuous and uninterrupted. And it was met with enthusiastic reviews worldwide. A universal icon and a metaphor of the human condition, the book is considered a canonical piece of children's literature and has had great impact on world culture. The book has been translated in as many as 260 languages worldwide, making it one of the most translated books. I was looking at it. I think people say it falls third. Likely one of the best-selling books ever published, its actual total sales since first being published are unknown due to the many reductions and different versions. It's interesting that it's just like, yeah, it's unknown. So that they really can't say. And it's up there with like the Bible as being one of the most widely sold, most widely translated books in in all of literature. Wow. Yeah, that's crazy because it's only, what is that, 200, not even 200 years old, right? Well, yeah, 1880s. Yeah, was that 140 years? Yeah, pretty long time. Uh, And it also just goes to show, like they don't have a lot of records of sales before a certain period. You know what I mean? It wasn't really tracked that way. So this is like, I guess you could consider this one of the most famous and and purchased children's stories for sure. Absolutely, it's up there. Yeah, it's it's it might even be more than like any of the other ones we've covered. I mean, again, it's really hard to quantify stuff like Snow White. You know the 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 Brothers Grimm stories because they've been they're so ancient in a sense and like a lot of them have been going around in different versions for so long and this is kind of at that cusp where it's kind of hard to really quantify it um, and yeah it's been adapted so many times I didn't read a ton about the adaptations I figured we'd save that but like notably the Disney adapt, adapt animated adaptation is considered one of the greatest animated films of all time I was reading a super uh, 
influential in the way it pioneered a lot of uh, animation uh, styles and and ways to like simulate depth and perspective and movement and all this stuff. And I was thinking that like we are going to have to cover that. We have to as yeah. a bonus I, episode at some point on our Patreon. Until this Del Toro adaptation came out, I was you know I thought we were going to do the Disney version, um, but I think it works out. I, I like that we're going to do it this way because it gives us an opportunity to do it as a bonus, and eventually we'll release that in the main feed. But yeah. it might be years from now. It'll be fun to tackle this modern thing that is currently up for awards, and we love stop motion, so I think it'll be really interesting to talk about. But we should totally tackle that de- yeah. Disney one. So, uh, and you mentioned like just how many adaptations, and and you know there's the Del Toro one, and then there just was another one with like Tom Hanks that yeah. everybody that was like aligned i mean honestly the list is like three pages long as i was scrolling through it of like musicals and comics and all these different versions there's a silent film where like half of it is lost so there's like a silent film where like some of it you can view but then the other half is just gone there was like an early attempt at this before the disney version that apparently was like super influential in animation i think in italy um but again i i I think some of it has been lost so it's it's like there's there's some really interesting stuff that went on with early attempts to adapt this. I guess I wouldn't have I I wouldn't have thought that this was is is as influential as it is like outside of just the the animation space and the film space but of a like if I think of the Disney films or I think of Grim Brothers Grimm tales or anything like that a lot of them I would place up above in terms of what I would assume the popularity to be above Pinocchio. But it is, I don't know, there's a lot, like you said, a lot of relatability, really iconic character, like like sort of, you think of the nose, you think of the clothing and the I'm going to be a real boy, sort of puppet, puppet master, puppet strings into the... Yeah, maybe that says something about where we're at today, but like with these new adaptations coming out, maybe it's going to bring it back into the you know mainstream. Um, because when you know when I was growing up, it was an old, it was like an old movie. You know what I mean? It was one of those old Disney sure. classics, I, along with you know Snow White, Peter Pan, like right. all the others. Yeah. So it just kind of seems one of a kind, like one of that kind of of movies. Um, whereas reading about it, I really saw how like hugely influential and popular, 260 languages worldwide. Like this is being read by everybody everywhere. Didn't we say like Agatha Christie's also very translated, right? Sure. I mean, we've work. covered a few that are that are right up there. Uh, absolutely. So let's talk a little bit more about uh, Kolodi, which again is a pen name. Um, interesting. This is just an interesting note for me. I don't know if anyone cares, but uh, Carlo Lorenzini is his real name. And I named a character in a short story, Carlo Lorenz. And it was specifically referencing his real actual name as I thought like a slight little reference, but I'm like, I'm just going to say it on this episode because we're talking about Pinocchio. That's cool. Yeah. I thought, I thought it was kind of fun. It's just a sly little, like it's a little different, but that was my nod to Pinocchio and my story. It's about a sentient AI. So cool. Um, okay. So as a young man, he joined the seminary. However, uh, the cause of Italian unification usurped his calling and he, he took to journalism as a means of supporting the uh, struggle with the Austrian empire. Um, I'm not sure. I didn't look into a ton of this historical stuff, but he was very involved in the political machinations of the time. He had a lot of opinions about it. Um, he began to write both fiction and nonfiction about this kind of thing. Um, and he then started translating fairy tales um, a little bit later after, I think, the unification, the founding of the Kingdom of Italy in 1861. Is really when he ceased his journalistic and militaristic activities and switched completely to children's books. I'm not sure if that's because he wanted that or not. I didn't see that specifically laid out, but something of the time he was he was talking a lot about the politics, right? Um, but then he decided he was going to start doing these translations, and then once he started doing the translations, as we've already talked about, it kind of led him 
to uh, writing this. I wonder if there's some subtext here. You know, I wonder yeah. if there's some allegory and and if he was baking in some of that stuff into this children's story. This is what I did find at the very least. It's so he he wrote this original book. Um, it was a children's story about. It was called Little Johnny's Voyage Through Italy in 1876, and it was a series about an unruly boy who undergoes humiliating experiences while traveling the country. Um, and it seems like that greatly influenced this. Like this was like his version of it that was more interesting. People really latched on to, and it seems like a lot of similar kind of stuff got brought over. Um, and he was really interested in telling that kind of story. He started off by sending a short episode of the life of a wooden puppet to a friend who edited a newspaper in Rome. And he wondered whether the editor would be interested in publishing this quote, bit of foolishness in the children's section. The editor did. And the children who read it loved it. So we've talked about it uh, being sent in and uh, got published in this serial format. What I thought was really interesting is that in on July 7th of 1881, which I talked about earlier when it originally stopped its run, this is how it stopped. In the original serialized version, Pinocchio dies a gruesome death, hanged for his innumerable faults at the end of chapter 15. <laughs> Do you remember chapter 15 when he gets hung? Yeah, where he's hanging, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That, he died. In the original version, it was like he went on these these little adventures, made a lot of mistakes, and got hung to death. <laughs> wow! I again, this that that brings up some of the darker side of this story. Like there there are, there's tons of abuse and like servitude. Yeah, stuff and... we see is that is that nowadays. Obviously, at the time, beating your children was not considered anything, right? It was just that was just part of life. Or like I don't the, even necessarily mean like you know familial abuse. It's like it's also like hanging people and well sure like, yeah <laughs> i mean yeah he gets into a lot of he gets into a lot of trouble out there um so uh at the request of his editor he added chapter 16 through 36 which was when he sort of revived it and in that he introduced the fairy with the turquoise hair which i think is translated to azure hair in the audiobook i listened to might have been called blue hair at a couple blue. different times. This is one of the things I'm talking about where like there's not only translation stuff going on where different translators have made different decisions and how to translate this over, but also there's some editorial stuff that went on in the audiobook I was listening to. So some things got renamed. I mean, calling Azure is a very cool way of saying someone has blue hair. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, I, that's, I'll take that. Yeah, I like turquoise too. Sure. So in this version, the fairy with turquoise hair rescues Pinocchio and eventually transforms him into a real boy when he acquires a deeper understanding of himself, making the story more suitable for children. In the second half of the book, the maternal figure of the blue-haired fairy is a dominant character versus the paternal figure of Geppetto in the first part. So children's literature was a new idea in Collodi's time and innovation of the 19th century. Thus, in content and style, it was new and modern, opening the way to many writers in the following century. So that's something I thought was interesting, too. He was like one of the first to do this kind of book, and it was so hugely popular that people who came after so many of them were influenced by Pinocchio. That was their like guide. They're like, I want to write a book like Pinocchio for children like Pinocchio. Um, probably L. Frank Baum, I imagine, was influenced by this. I mean, you look at the the ten woodmen, woodsmen, right, and the 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 similarities to Pinocchio are, are there to be seen. Sure, there are many concepts and situations expressed in the book that have become proverbial, such as the long nose, commonly attributed to those who tell lies, the land of toys, uh, which I, I was thinking about how I believe in Rudolph the Red Nosed Reindeer, there was a land of misfit toys. 
that they go to at one point. I think so. Yeah, that sounds familiar. Yeah. So uh, I was wondering if that was like a reference to this, the land of toys. But apparently this idea was around at the time. It was like a popular fairy tale discussion point metaphor. I don't know about like a land where you would go and everyone was lazy and it like rained cheese. And I, I was reading that like the nuns like would often fall over and show their bottoms and stuff. Like it was like, wow. (laughs) Yeah. It was racy stuff. Um, but you know, it's like everybody wanted to go live in this world where there was like no work and everything was given to you. Yeah. Lots of nuns bums in this world. (laughs) There was nuns bums. Uh, (laughs) But, um, I thought, I thought it was interesting that like he included this land of toys to be kind of that here. But often when it's being talked about, it's like people talking about why it's bad, right? Like why you are not going to like it in that we shouldn't want that. We should want to work. Um, and that was kind of the the way it was often used. But I don't know. I haven't read a ton about it. I, maybe it was used in a lot of different ways. I was also reading that burst into laughter, that phrase, comes from this book, specifically referencing the section where the snake uh, laughed so hard that it died. Um, apparently that w- became like a thing people would reference that, that scene. And yeah, literally the, the idea of burst into laughter, that phrase. That's so wild. That's the kind of thing that when I hear these, I always assume those like, yeah, idioms tend to go back to like Shakespeare and like a lot of them further do. back than that. <laughs> yeah. Right. And, and so to hear something like this, uh, creating one that's very, I mean, one of the most common things you can say about somebody like bursting into laughter is right. like, that's, and that, that's yeah, pretty cool, incredible. man. It's cool to see that. So throughout Pinocchio, uh, it is interesting to note that uh, Collodi is chastising Pinocchio for his lack of moral fiber and his persistent rejection of responsibility and desire for fun. Um, the story basically follows that of the folk tales of peasants who would venture out into the world but be naively unprepared for what they find and get into ridiculous situations. Um, at the time of writing this book, this was a serious problem. So we're talking about some of the like actual politics of the day, arising partly from the industrialization of Italy, which led to a growing need for reliable labor in the cities. The problem was exacerbated by similar, more or less simultaneous demands for labor in the industrializations of other co- uh, other countries. So I was reading about how, like, basically in Italy at the time, a bunch of people in the rural areas of Italy were trying, were having to come into the cities to get jobs. And so you had a lot of people who were very secluded and didn't have a lot of experience in like the modern world coming in and a lot of them would get taken advantage of. So this was not only for children, but also I think for the like trying to teach people to be wary when they're on the road and not trust everybody you meet and like that kind of thing. (laughs) A lot of that going on. Yeah. Tons of that. <laughs> and that was very, and it's interesting to think like that's because that's, this was a huge problem at the time. <laughs> yeah. So like I said, that that did, did make its way into the work. It sounds like even if it was, you know, you're saying like it was for children and then also for others, but I think it's specifically for the children that 20 years from then would grow up and like sort of would be the next generation of the work. Probably 12 years. They were probably, they were probably moving into the cities to start working at like 10 or 12. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I guess. true. Yeah, true that. <laughs> so interesting to think about um, what... Is there an ulterior motive here? Was it out of the goodness of his heart? Was he trying to tell morality tales to to get people on the straight and narrow? Or was it also like, let me make sure our workforce is motivated? And you know what I mean? It might just be more about like, how do I sell a children's book? It needs to have stuff like this in it. That's what parents are going to want. They're the ones buying the book is the assumption, right? And they're going to want it to teach their children something. So I think the idea of this like didactic, like, lesson teaching style of story was popular in the mother goose version 
and popular in the Brothers Grimm versions. There's a lot of lessons being taught in those stories. And I think he took that to heart and he said, okay, if I'm going to make a, a children's story, it needs to do that thing. And it wasn't until someone like L. Frank Baum came by later and was like, no, no, no. I just want this to be a fun story for children and not be hitting them over the head with lessons. Most stories are have a lesson, whether it's subtle or, or more. But there's a difference you know. between a subtle, like implicit like lesson and the very explicit Kalodi <laughs> telling you, be a good boy, listen to your parents, <laughs> you know, yeah. which he does over and over and over. Book. <laughs> yeah, totally. So, yeah, like we were saying, the main imperatives of Pinocchio are to be to work, to be good and to study. And in the end, it is his willingness to provide for his father and devote himself to these things that transforms him into a real boy with modern comforts. Okay, so uh, that's that's what I have for the history of the book. You know, very influential, and um, it, you know, it, it it is cool to slot it in. I think in my mind in the history of children's literature and how it was a clear stepping stone between, you know, uh, Brothers Grimm and L. Frank Baum. And Wizard of Oz. Oh, that was cool to see. Cool to see. I'm glad to know it now. And and you know, I think as we go on, when we do eventually watch the Disney film, we're gonna have to think about like what Walt Disney was was bringing to that sort of story that was such a big bestseller. And then also what Del, Del Toro this week, this coming week, when we cover the Del Toro, like what what is he seeing in this story? Again, that's like one of the most well-respected and, and highly published novels, children's novels, and like what, you know, what he's going to do with that in terms of making a children's stop-motion animated film that's also probably not going to be just a children's stop-motion animated film, if I if I know Del Toro as a, as a filmmaker. Yeah, and there's going to be a darkness there, right? Because mm-hmm. the illustrations were fairly dark throughout this book, this version, and um, we know Guillermo del Toro loves horror. So I, I just imagine there's going to be some some dark and kind of twisted looking stuff in here. And I can see him looking at the work and I've seen, you know, a trailer. I've seen art and they, they he was heavily inspired by Gris Grimley's illustrations. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, did, what, what, what do we know about this person? Yeah, I read a little bit about Gris Grimley. He's an American. Um, it looked like he was born in Nebraska. He got drawn to um, the exciting and scary world of monsters and goblins, heavily inspired by classic horror films, uh, writers such as Edgar Allan Poe, H.P. Lovecraft. Um yeah, it seems like he has just been an artist who's always drawn to that kind of stuff. Born in 1975, so yeah, only 10 years older than me, which is wild to think about. <laughs> he's uh, he's worked on several other other like uh, nursery rhymes and different kinds of books. Um, he did uh, Tales from Brothers Grimm, where he did illustrations. He did The Halloween Tree by Red Bradbury. Um, he's, he's done a version of uh, Frankenstein, apparently, I'm seeing here. <laughs> uh, Edgar Allan Poe Tales. So he's he's released a lot of versions where he did his style of animation. Oh, even here, here's one, The Dangerous Alphabet by Neil Gaiman. Apparently wow. he did illustrations for it. So, I'm going to yeah. have to dig more into this person and, and see more of their work because hearing all of that uh, makes me want to check out his version of Frankenstein and, and you know all these other story so yeah oh here we go so his pinocchio that was uh the one we got here was released in 2002 by tor so yeah, yeah it's 20 years old now but but a, but a post 2000s book so yeah fairly yeah. fairly modern i would say oh, he did a version of legend of sleepy hollow by washington irving another another uh podcast favorite so yeah all right man yeah so i'm not gonna do we're not gonna do like an actual plot synopsis for this one because so much happens um it would just be too long to read um, so instead, we'll just kind of hop around, I think, and talk about parts that interest us. 
um, that we found notable. And uh, yeah, I'll let you start off. Let's start. Uh, we, we already touched a little bit on him starting off as a talking block of wood. What were your thoughts on that opening? Bizarre. You know, <laughs> you're getting a character that's already starting. It already has thoughts and is already speaking. And it's like uh, fighting back against being turned into firewood. It was being mischievous, right? Like it was turning it was turning Geppetto and this uh, woodcutter uh, against each other. It was like throwing out little insults, knowing that they wouldn't know where it was coming from. <laughs> yeah. And thinking of Geppetto from my memory and just like Geppetto being like, we got beef and like yeah. wanting to like get in a fight with a guy like right away over some wood. It was funny. It was funny how it was said because it was like they got in a fight and then they promised that they're like, oh, that was stupid. It'll never happen again. We're friends forever. Nothing will ever come between us. And then like two seconds later, the wood says something, something similar or something new and totally sets them back and they have another fight. And then they have the same reaction afterwards where they're like, ah. Never again. We're friends forever. <laughs> yeah. It's a sadder tale for Geppetto because Geppetto like is cre- crafting this person and he sees it as his son already. Poor dad just wants his son to be a good boy. Yeah. Yep. And then he like sells the, the shirt off his back, literally like the coat off of his back. And he's and he's shivering through the winter get him a just so book. he can get an ABC book for his yep. uh for his son and then his son is so dumb that he sells it immediately and is like yep. duped into some he sells it to what get a ticket for the marionette show yep which i had so many questions about because he goes into the marionette show and they all know him they're like oh pinocchio our favorite and i'm like so <laughs> wait how do you know him he just got made Yep. i don't even know what he is are you telling me that yeah. he knows all marionettes and also all marionettes can talk that makes him less special if all marionettes can talk yeah, I think that's what it is, right? All wood talks to each other, and they're all—it's all magical wood in this story. I don't know, man. And, and like, that's the kind of stuff that like he doesn't deal with any of that. He just goes. It's always moving forward. It doesn't like slow down to talk about these details at all or interrogate them. None of that. It just moves forward. And I have so many questions. I'm like, how is this possible? I yeah. don't know. I'm not, Geppetto, it's interesting. I, and I know that Geppetto created this, and he's like, that's my creation. That's also my son. But then. He didn't he really knows he just this, carved the wood. He, yeah. yeah, he knows it for about five minutes. And then, like, I guess time goes by. There's a Time seems to go by for sure because, like, time flies by in this book. He's going to school. Yeah. He's going to school a little bit or he's attempting he's to go to school. supposed to be, yeah. Uh, so he doesn't know him for all that long. And then, you know, then he goes on this adventure and he disappears and we find out later that Geppetto's been looking for He, like, leaves home and goes searching for his son for, for years or something. And he, you know kind of wild to think like all right you just you made that thing like a couple minutes ago how about the talking cricket so at some point he's like runs away from home burns his own feet off i forget exactly the order in which these things occur but he talks to this cricket and it's a hundred year old talking cricket and he kills it he throws like a book at it or a boot or something hammer Hammer, is that what it is he throws a hammer at it kills the cricket later comes back in the form of a ghost i guess a ghost cricket and then also is just back as a cricket again Later, and it seems to be the same cricket. And I am like, how is it alive? I don't know. I don't understand. A lot of that magical uh, <laughs> changing of bodies happening all over the story. But I, I just thought it was so, I was like, oh my God, it's like a hundred year old cricket. It's like, let me give you some wisdom. And he just fucking throws a hammer at it and kills it. Kills it immediately. <laughs> He's a bad boy. <laughs> He's not saying anything particularly groundbreaking either. He's like, just do the right thing and don't trust everybody, you know, that kind of stuff. And Boop, killed. And then uh, we get the fox and the and the cat. Fox and the cat. And I like to tell you, the, the, was it the cat who would always like uh, echo the fox? I thought that was kind of a fun little device and he used it throughout. The cat's pretending to be blind um, and then like proves that it's not. And then like eventually becomes actually blind and like that poetic justice kind of thing. 
um, to try and teach you, like, don't don't be like the cat and the fox, I guess. Um, they have a they, they're definitely like preying upon Pinocchio and you see it coming. Right. As they're like their promises are so grandiose. They're like, yeah, take that five gold pieces and bury it in the ground and it'll turn into two thousand or something, something ridiculous. And he's like, oh, OK, that sounds good. <laughs> it does sound good, Pinocchio, but uh, don't trust everybody. <laughs> Like five people have already yeah. told you that. Yeah, and there's like a there's like a bird that's overhearing it, like a crow or something, and it's like, oh, you probably shouldn't listen to them, Pinocchio, and the cat just eats it. <laughs> like cat murders the bird. And he's like, Why did you murder that bird? And it's like, oh, I didn't know when to shut up. Anyway, let me tell you about this field you should bury your gold in. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then these are the these are the the assassins who come after him later. Yeah, as well. for sure. Yeah, which I love because there's like a cat paw or something in his mouth at one point. So that's how you kind of like get it confirmed that that's who it is. But I don't know if Pinocchio ever knows for sure, but we know. Yeah, he. I don't think he picks up on it now that you say it. Like, Because he meets him again later and he doesn't call him out and be like, you're the assassins. He's like, I got attacked by yeah. assassins. And the assassins were the ones who tried to hang him. And do yeah. hang him, apparently, in the original they version. They do hang him. <laughs> yeah, and then so he just keeps trusting these characters as he meets up with them. Um, he goes to When he goes to the marionette shop, by the way, we meet this guy. His name's Fire Eater, apparently. And he's the director. And I've heard that the term Fire Eater has like, become like a, a common phrase now um, I don't know if it's just in Italian because I, I, I can't think of that being a thing in English but um, that particular translation that phrase is like common for boisterous people I think or something like that um, and he's got this huge black beard and um, he's like th- he runs all the marionettes and like he he runs them with iron fist it seems like and he's like threatening to kill him and like burn him for his dinner and there's a lot of that kind of stuff that goes on too or like He's either at, at risk of being burned alive or eaten or something like that, right? Totally. Yeah. I mean, many, many times. Here's an interesting one. So he, he goes to the end of the Red Lobster. Uh, so funny. Which was also the end of the Red Crayfish, I think, in the in the book. And like this is where I was starting to notice a lot of these translation differences. We hear about the land of Simple Simons, which I think is what it was called in the audio book. But it was, all, it was called the land of the owls in the, in the actual book physical books. So I was like, oh my gosh, what is it? I don't know. And that's um, that's something that would happen a lot, where the things would be renamed. Um, so sometimes it's hard to know <laughs> what what I should refer to it as. Um, and then, yeah, he gets attacked by the assassins. And then he go, he runs away from the assassins and I think he makes it to a haunted house. So he gets ghosts. saved by the fairy. She, um, I think she sends the, the poodle in the carriage to like rescue him. Um, if I'm remembering correctly, and then he gets he gets looked at by doctors. There's a crow, an owl, and a cricket doctor who are debating whether or not he's even alive. Which is like the one time where they actually engage with him being a marionette is the sense of like, is he even alive? And he is. He's just kind of faking that he's dead. But the cricket is right. I think because cricket goes last and says like, oh no no no, he's alive. Whereas the other two were like, no, he's dead. Well, I, and I feel like this is the area where he ended it and then he like retconned it by, by having characters show up and be like, no, he's actually alive. You, you see? No, you're probably right. <laughs> Throughout he's super fussy and he's like, the people like offer him food and he's like so hungry, but he's like, I don't want to eat that. No, the pears, they have to be, you have to cut the skin off and get the cores out and then I'll eat them. And then he like, he eats that and then he's like, I'm still hungry. And they're like, well, you could eat the rest of it if you want. And he's like, all right. And he eats the cores and the skin. And he's like, now I'm full. And it's like, see, I told you, you should listen to your elders when they tell you to eat things (laughs) um he's oh another thing that i thought was really odd and i wasn't sure how this worked and maybe this was a statement on something political at the time but he gets he gets robbed right he loses his four remaining gold pieces um and he goes to report it in this town 
and they throw him in jail for four months. <laughs> for getting robbed. For getting yeah. robbed. And then there's some sort of thing where like they're going. Somebody wins a battle, like a king won a battle mm-hmm. or something like and that. And he's decided to release all of the criminals from the prisons. Celebrations are ensuing. There's fireworks and parades. And then he's like, also, just let all the criminals out. Yeah. And uh, when he does that, Pinocchio has to lie and say that he robbed people rather than was robbed and that's the only way he can get released so that does seem like it's making some sort of political satire like broken system statement about something yeah probably very anti like (laughs) letting people out of jail that was going on at the time or something who knows it's hard to know what the exact politics were of the you know that era but i assume they weren't they weren't great by modern standards but who knows yeah man there's so many little things that happen like he gets caught by a farmer and like Put, they put he puts a dog collar on him and makes him like stand guard and these four ferrets come up and like he's supposed to sound the alarm and they try and convince him that they had a they had a previous deal with the dog where the dog would like pretend like it was asleep and then they would like steal the chickens and leave one for the dog at the end and um they try to strike the same deal with Pinocchio but he's not having it yeah he's a snitch Pinocchio is a fucking snitch so I guess yeah <laughs> he, he turns the ferrets in who get caught and i think they do get like sold or something like they they are going to get sold by the farmer to like the meat market or something <laughs> something yeah and um he's like oh i can't believe my old dog never saw these ferrets and you did the first night and then Pinocchio's like well i guess i don't need to like like rat on the Right on the dog, at least, because it's dead now. That was another commentary. He was like, you know, the dead can't speak for themselves, so just, like, let it He'll let just it let lie. it go. Yeah. Which was, I guess, nice of Pinocchio. Maybe a statement there as well, yeah. Yeah. Uh, man, he rides on a pigeon. Uh, <laughs> to a beach. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then and then this is where I think he first sees, his, sees Geppetto out in the ocean on a boat, and they, like, wave at each other, but then uh, the ocean, like, takes him away, and he they don't, like, he's gone now. Um, and the, this is when we first hear about this terrible shark, which, by the way, was called a dogfish in the book. Disney film is a giant whale. It's like a sperm whale, right? Yeah. Um, which makes sense for its size. He, this is also when he meets the Azure fairy again, who's gotten older now, which is my first indication that like a bunch of time had passed, I guess. I thought that she was younger. No, no. She's older when, she, when he meets her now, um, because he, this is the first time where he wishes he could grow old, too. And he's okay, like, yeah, yeah. originally when they met, he considered her his sister. But now he's like, now you're my mom because you're older than me. Yeah. Um, he was like calling her mommy very quick. Yeah. And yeah. <laughs> um, he, uh, this is when he first expresses the desire to be, a, he, he wants to be a real boy. And part of it is so that he can age along with her. I was surprised it was so far into the story as well. Like such a notable part of the story that we know it as being you know halfway or more into the story and there's a little bit of the the his nose growing was farther into the story than i expected and some of the characteristics are, are kind of threaded throughout whereas like in the in the disney film it's like right away he wants to be a real boy he meets the blue fairy right away uh i think she even like comes in like animates him and uh you know the nose growing happens basically right away so yeah yeah i mean it's important parts of the story so you get it out there early i get it um, also, I just think modern readers slash viewers are like really interested in the fact that he's a marionette in a way that the book seems less interested in until later. Marionette, uh, it kept they kept calling it a puppet in the book too. Puppet marionette, which is like yeah. an interesting distinction from the I assume book the uh, actual. I think marionette is more accurate, but I guess I guess a marionette is a style of puppet. Is it more commonly known as a marionette in Italy, maybe versus puppet? I don't know. So t- talking about this marionette thing is like I had a. It's probably fairly obvious for people 
but for me it was a little bit of a light bulb moment because we were having the fairy talk to him about how he needs to be a good lad he needs to go to school develop a hard work ethic become you know more what 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 is expected of him as a boy and then he'll become a real boy specifically resist outside pressures from like friends there's a lot of like shady friends that he gets and they influence him in bad ways and he is bad about saying no they want him to leave school and not go study they want him to ditch basically and so my light bulb moment was i'm like this is the metaphor this is the the idea of the strings this is the idea of being a marionette and dancing on other people's strings is all these other people that he's meeting in his life are making him behave in certain ways and he's not resisting it and it isn't until he's able to resist it finally that he can become his, become a real boy and no longer be a puppet. Um, and I was like, okay, that's fairly. I think that's fairly obvious, but it never really clicked for me like why he's a puppet and and how that influ- that how that works with the the influence of all these people he meets. Well, I mean, I, yeah, I don't think that in the film it's as evident as that. I think here it's more. I, I don't remember though. You know, it's been a long time since I've seen the the Disney film, and it'll be interesting to to see if that's the case for the the Del Toro film. Uh, but yeah, I mean, that's a good it's a good note to make because if it is that commentary of the politics of the time, and just like the influences and how they're kind of wanting people to think as individuals, and yeah, don't be manipulated. So he has a character who's easily manipulated, makes him a puppet, right? And then it's not when he learns to stop being manipulated so easily, he becomes a real boy. Might have just been that simple. Yeah, so here here he decides he's going to get back on the straight and narrow. He's going to do everything he needs to do so that he can become a real boy. Goes to school. And he's being really good for a little while. But then he's so popular that he his one his one like foible is that he has, he's too popular and he makes too many friends. And a lot of them are not good friends. And they want him to goof off and go. Uh, they invite him to go look at this giant shark. Um, he tries to say no and they end up getting in a fight about it. Um, in which he like almost kills one of them by throwing a book at him. And then the police show up, try and capture him. He runs away. And he's getting chased by a dog, and then he runs into the he escapes into the sea. The dog follows him into the sea, and the dog starts to drown. And then he goes back and saves the dog's life um, before before fleeing, where he is eventually picked up by a green fisherman. Um, which the the picture of the green fisherman and the Gris Grimm oh, yeah. illustration is amazing. <laughs> it was so good, and this is one of the main ones that stuck in my mind. Yeah, it's a good one. He's such a wild looking creature. Yeah. So uh, this guy is going to eat him. He's like, I'm, uh, you're, a, you're a marionette, you're a puppet. That's a rare fish in these parts. So he's all ready to eat him. Um, and it's going to fry him up, rolls him in a bunch of flour. Yeah. And then it's the, uh, it's the dog comes back whose, whose life he has previously saved. And the dog returns the favor by saving his life. So, again, you see a lot of the lessons of, like, do unto others until you, as you have them do unto you. And, you know, the karma coming back and helping him. Um and then we get him going to the land of toys um, as he is tempted by his friend um, Lampwick. And his friend Lampwick is, you know, he's up to no good. All he wants to do is live in this world of toys and land of toys and goof off and never have to work, never have to study. That's like one of the big selling points. It's like, oh, you come to this land, you'll never have to study. It's not a thing. And he ends up convincing him to go with this like sketchy dude um to to go there and um when he gets there um 
the, oh, on the way, there was these like crying donkeys who are like who are like driving the the wagons, and it's like, why is that? Why is that donkey weeping? And he's like, oh, they just do that. They've always done that. Don't worry about it. <laughs> and I was thinking about annihilation when I read this part. I was thinking oh, about really? the like dolphin with human eyes from the book. Yeah, I thought you were talking about the screaming bear for a second. <laughs> yeah, well, that too. No, I was thinking about the book and like the the idea of these donkeys with like human tears is <laughs> pretty creepy. And and this part is we're getting into now with the children and and Pinocchio changing into donkeys. Even in the Disney animation, this part was always kind of terrifying to me. Like it's kind of body horror, right? And and it's the way they transform yeah. and they start braying instead of being able to talk, um, pretty dark I, and definitely scary. scary. Yeah, yeah, very scary. Uh, one, definitely the, one of the parts that sticks with me in in the film as well. It's like um, I guess jumping ahead, one of the one of the kids remains a donkey and dies. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, well, that's super a, fucked that's up. That's not that's Lampwick. He finds Lampwick later, who is like now old age has been worked to death by a farmer, and doesn't save him he's just doomed now so that just goes to show you what happens if you're like lampwick and is this some sort of slave labor servant servitude kind of thing that he's got going on here i don't know i don't really know what the situation was like and i think it's more just that if you're a bad boy this happens to you all they were doing was just they played to excess and then eventually they because of that they had so much fun they turned into donkeys because they're i guess the idea is that they're dumb and they become this like really the the if you continue to, metaphors are real in this world apparently so yeah if you continue to to not study and and work hard and things like that you you are just yeah. a donkey I, I also love that there it's revealed that this this uh I don't remember his name but the guy who sells who like takes him to the land of uh toys he's got this whole racket where he's become a millionaire by luring boys to the land of toys to to this to this world of like not having to work and not having to study and then they transform into donkeys and then he turns around and sells them and that's how he's made like millions of dollars <laughs> apparently there's so much money yeah. in, in this sort of thing apparently but um and that's how lampwick gets sold to the farmer right yeah human trafficking yeah and and is. he goes to sell pinocchio once pinocchio turns into a donkey and he goes to sell him to uh to this guy who's going to skin him he wants to like kill him and skin him and turn him into a drum. Pretty dark. <laughs> yeah. And um, he tries to drown him. He like to put ties him to a bunch of rocks and throws him in the ocean or something. And this is where he finally turns back into a marionette. Um, unclear why, but he does. Like instead of drowning, he turns into a marionette. Um, and then he's able to get away through this, basically, right? And then from here, the st- the story kind of like wraps up pretty quickly, right? Well, it's- so he goes he goes off swimming as as a as a puppet now, and who do we encounter? The shark. And I love that it was funny at the start. He's like, "I'll give you a thousand guesses to as to who was in the belly." And I don't know if it was being facetious or not, but it was like, well, obviously it's Geppetto, right? <laughs> and it's Geppetto. <laughs> we know that now. You know, at the time, everyone was. I mean, it was pretty clear. <laughs> yeah. Had to be, right? Nobody yeah. else was on the water. So apparently the shark has been like swallowing whole ships. And it, because it swallowed a whole ship, Geppetto was able to survive on like the some of the gear and stuff and food, I assume, that was like in the ship's hold. Do we think Collodi was in the in, in the know about megalodons then? Is he just like a big, <laughs> <laughs> he's really never know. Moby Dick, I guess. He's, you know. Uh, so yeah, there's the whole sequence where he's re- reunited with Geppetto they end up sneaking out while the while the shark is asleep because it said that he has like he's he's very old and he has asthma 
and he sleeps with his mouth open. So they're able to like escape, which I was like, how did how did Geppetto not escape already? If he if that's the case, but okay, he can't <laughs> swim well. Yeah, Pinocchio swims out for him. True, true. Um, oh, this is also the point in which he sees a blue haired goat, and he's like, oh, it's my fairy. And I'm like, wait, the goat is your fairy now? How? Why? I'm so confused. <laughs> So yeah, after this, this is when he uh, is reunited with the old cricket, who is somehow alive, and he meets. This is when he meets Lampwick, who is sold uh, and worked to, literally worked to death as mm-hmm. a donkey. Um, all the all the favorites come back in the end. That's the way you end this thing. You bring back all the old classics. So the snail, the snail who he originally met outside of the blue fairy's house, is now an old snail. And I loved when he t- when he tells the snail, like, I'm going to give you these 50 pennies or whatever he decides to give him to go help the blue fairy who's sick now. And they're like, we got to help the blue fairy. So he gives them all these pennies. And then the snail <laughs> basically, like, picks itself up and runs off like a lizard. <laughs> yeah. Even though even though the whole time he had been saying, like, oh, yeah, I, or she has been saying, I'm very slow moving yeah. and picks up and running. And I just it. love the idea of this snail all of a sudden just running off like one of those scampering lizards. <laughs> That's just a funny image, man. Um, yeah, and so this is his good deed, right? He does this good deed at the end, and um, he's able to help the blue fairy. And then I think the next day he wakes up and he's been changed into a real boy. Yeah, the, the fairy likes it, maybe sends a letter or something. Yeah, that says, fairy, fairy sends uh, a letter. Yeah, and oh, also, Geppetto is young now. That's the other thing that happens. Magically, Geppetto has been brought back to like the same age he was when he first made Pinocchio. So they're going to get to kind of live together in a true familiar relationship, I guess. Yeah, there's like a Benjamin Button thing going on <laughs> mixed with like people being turned into real boys from, you know, puppets. There's also uh, the the passage of time. Like I thought there was maybe a commentary being made on like, this person, this Pinocchio is not aging and like in the perspective of Pinocchio, not a lot of time is passing, but tons of time is passing for the rest of the characters because everybody keeps getting older and older. Yeah. Um, so one thing that I thought was pretty tragic at the end here is when he becomes a real boy, he isn't transformed into a real boy. He is now a real boy and the puppet is in the corner collapsed and imp- and like dead. So I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> Who's the real Pinocchio? Is did, did Pinocchio die? Is this a new version of Pinocchio? Like, yeah, it's kind of sad. That, and he looks at it and he's like, he has such disdain for it. He's like, how embarrassing it was that I ever looked like that. Now I'm now I'm like proudly a real boy. And I was having the opposite reaction of like sadness at seeing this like fallen over puppet that he no longer is in like embodies. I think it's more it's the the commentary, right? Is and then like whereas in the narrative you're like, oh, that was you know the that's the Pinocchio we we've known this whole time, and that's what makes him interesting. The fact that he's a puppet, yeah. And then and then now, but like the commentary is like you're no longer a puppet. You're your own individual exactly. person. You're a real boy. Yep. Um. So shedding that and looking back and being like, how could I have ever lived yeah. like that? Um. But yeah, it is sad if you think of it just at face value. Right. Yeah. I mean that looking back at your former self. You know, so med- like in that sense of just like aging and, and, and maturing, but then also, yeah, that that idea of like becoming normal and instead of being abnormal is sort of looked at as a good thing in this book. But like that's something that I think a lot of people have interrogated. Right. Because in some sure. in many ways, Pinocchio was unique and interesting and weird before. And now he's become like everybody else. 
Um, so to me, that's kind of inherently sad, mm-hmm. um, which is definitely an alternate reading of this book. That's not what like that's not what Carlo Collodi wants you to read into it. But um, that's the yeah that's the reaction I was I found myself having. Um, it's such an interesting read, and even though I I, I do want to say this book feels like parental propaganda <laughs> totally that's exactly what it is yeah. yeah yeah let me read you a chapter about what's gonna happen to you if you don't do the dishes or something like it's really heavy-handed at times listen to your parents and work hard but i still had a good time with it partly because so many adventures happen it's wild like the stuff that happens is out of the blue and then comparing it to the art like like having the art as a companion to what i was reading really added another dimension to it, right? And it gave it a certain style that I was able to keep in my mind when I was picturing things. I was picturing them in the style of this art. That became my, like, window into the into the story. Whereas if I didn't have this version of the book, I think I would have been I would have been thinking more in the terms of the Disney version in my when I was like picturing scenes. Did that happen to you? What what kind of Pinocchio were yeah. you picturing? This gave me that new fresh experience with the characters, and that's I, like I, this is the art that I wish that I had always seen with with Pinocchio. I would have liked uh, it. Yeah, it really did bring a lot, and it gave me um, yeah, it gave me a fresh perspective, and and it matched the the darker subject matter than I think the the Disney film had. So it elevated it for me. I'm so excited to see Guillermo del Toro's you know, version of this and what he's able to do in stop motion. Uh, That should be super fun. But yeah, that's going to be it for the book. If you enjoyed this coverage, please let us know in the form of a rating and review on whatever app you chose to listen on. Uh, We'd love to get more five-star ratings on there. Let us know you listen to our Pinocchio coverage and uh, that'd be much appreciated. And find us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all of those at Ink to Film. And, you know, we're on TikTok and all of the places look for yeah, us. Yeah, definitely check us out on TikTok. I've been posting uh, little video clips because we record these episodes in video now and we've been pulling clips for TikTok and stuff like that. So that's a good place to check that out. We'd love to have you on there. Also YouTube, you know, we're on YouTube, subscribe yeah, YouTube and, and like videos. We got YouTube shorts from from the episodes. So uh, yeah, it seems like people are liking those. So, so you know, let us know by subscribing. Yeah, definitely. And if you'd like to support this podcast monetarily, thank you. You're one of the special ones. Um, we have all kinds of bonus content available, like we just talked about. That's what we'll be doing the uh, the older version of Pinocchio. I think we can bank that we're going to do that soon. Um, and that will be on our Patreon. Um, and uh, we also have access to different merch on there, different tiers. Just go on there, check it out, see what tier appeals to you most. We'd love to have you. And thank you to Ross Bugden for the use of our intro and outro music. All right. We're going to be back next week with a exciting adaptation. I'm so into it, man. But until next time, keep adapting. Keep adapting.